You are listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I am your host, Celine Yeager. Each week, I bring you advice from athletes, scientists, researchers, and other experts to help you feel and perform your best, no matter what your hormones are doing. This show is a production of Live Feisty Media. Hello, strong, feisty women. I hope you all are well. So before we get to it, I have just a couple of housekeeping items on the top of the show here. A few of you reached out to me following the latest hormone episode with Dr. Carla DiGirolamo with just a couple of questions and concerns, and I just wanted to address them at the top here. Uh, The biggest one was women wondering if they were taking enough progesterone because they were taking 100 milligrams of micronized progesterone when Carla mentioned that 200 milligrams of micronized progesterone was the gold standard. And that's what you see in a lot of the packaging and a lot of the literature. And I got a number of DMs about that. So I took it straight to Carla. And, you know, she said the longstanding, quote unquote, standard for uterine protection and what has a wealth of data behind it is that 200 milligrams orally. But more recently, there has been data suggesting that 100 milligrams of micronized progesterone orally is adequate. There's just less data behind that because it's relatively new. But in the case of combined oral therapies, especially like Bijuva, which uses 100 milligrams of progesterone, she would be completely comfortable with that. And of course, you can always talk to your doctor for their reasoning behind their dosing, which she also suggested in that show. Where she was less comfortable with those lower doses of progesterone is especially around gels and patches because there's variability in how well that progesterone is absorbed and she would just be less comfortable at that lower dose in those cases especially. So I hope that clears that up. Uh, There were also a couple of women who contacted me and you guys are just so awesome. I mean, people were just genuinely concerned for this CrossFit athlete and I fully appreciate that. She talked about that CrossFit athlete she was working with who had lost her period because of reds. And Carla had mentioned using hormones to help her sort of get out of part of her conundrum there. And a few of you were concerned that Carla was using hormones to quote unquote mask the reds, which uh, that's all on me for not making it more clear. In this case, the athlete has a whole team working with her. And as Carla mentioned when I talked to her about this, she's like, it is definitely the first line of treatment in solving REDS is getting to those underlying fueling and training issues. 100%. Carla is coming in as the endocrine specialist here and is really just trying to get some estrogen back into that, that athlete's circulation. So I hope that clears it up as well. And I am also wishing the best for that athlete, because as we have talked about many, many times on this show, we take low energy availability and relative energy deficiency in sport very seriously here. All right. Thank you for your messages. You all are really the best. All right. So let's take a breath and move on to this week, where I sit down with Jill Miller, the author of Body by Breath which if any of you are familiar with Kelly Starrett's Supple Leopard book, which is enormous, Body by Breath is like Supple Leopard, but for breathing. It is a super important topic, especially for this time of life. 
We talk a lot about breathwork on this show for stress reduction and to help with menopausal symptoms. Heck, even the North American Menopause Society has a page on using paced respiration or slow, deliberate breathing sessions to help manage menopause symptoms like hot flashes on their website. And that's because breathing can help us turn on our parasympathetic system or that rest and digest system and turn down the volume on the fight, flight, sympathetic, runaway stress that many of us experience, especially during this time of life. But here's the thing. Most of us don't really think about our breath much. And maybe more importantly, we aren't aware of what's preventing us from breathing in the ways that benefit us most. And what I really loved about Jill's book is that it's so much more than a tutorial on how to breathe, you know, the counting, maybe the taping of your mouth, etc. It's it's an examination of our emotional and physical selves through the lens of breath and breathing. And it covers everything, like how diet culture and body image issues can actually prevent us from accessing our full breath, and how tight, restricted muscles and fascia which we can develop very easily and do all the time as active women, can restrict our breathing, and how opening up all of these channels to access our breath can really transform our emotional and our physical health. And like I said, we go deep here and wade into some pretty intense and sometimes uncomfortable waters like eating disorders and abuse. And we also go deep into physiology And I learned a ton there. For all the schooling I've had on muscles, I realized how embarrassingly little I knew about the diaphragm. It was was really pretty eye-opening. And just to define a couple of the muscles and other body parts and systems we talk about, because we talk about so much to take in here, um, we talk about the diaphragm, obviously, which she very completely defines. We also talk about the intercostals, and those are the muscles between your ribs, as well as the psoas, which are your hip flexors, which run from your low back, your lumbar spine on both sides and through your groin, and they help flex your hips. We also talk about the vagus nerve, which is one of the main nerves of that parasympathetic system, which controls heart rate and digestion, among other functions. She makes reference to some of the self-massage tools that she uses, like the Corgis Balls, which uh, Juliet Starrett also talks about on her episode. They're these squishy inflatable balls that are good for abdominal massage work. I will put links to that in the show notes. And uh, though this book is particularly new, Jill Miller is not new. She has been around for decades. She is a longtime certified yoga therapist and the co-founder of TuneUp Fitness Worldwide, Yoga TuneUp, and the Role Model Method. She has trained thousands of movement educators and clinicians and manual therapists, and she has crafted original programs for 24-hour fitness, Equinox, Yoga Works, and other professional sports teams. She and her team of more than 500 trainers help people live better in their bodies with an emphasis on proprioception, mobility, breath mechanics, and recovery. You can learn more about her, her books, and all of her work at tuneupfitness.com. I'll link that in the show notes. I hope you enjoy this one and get as much out of it as I did. All right. I talked a lot here, so just a couple of notes. 
Due to popular demand, we're having another feisty menopause performance retreat in Lake Nona. It will be November 16th through the 18th. The last one was amazing, so I'm sure this one will fill up fast. You can check that out at feistymenopause.com. Uh, while you're there, sign up for my free weekly newsletter with all the menopause info you need to know. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Feisty Menopause. And thanks to That's It, Fruit Bars and Healthy Snacks for their continued support of this show. I have really been training my gut for this upcoming 70.3 Ironman, which for me has meant trying to get in 200 to 250 calories an hour. And it's been going really well. And I appreciate having That's It bars as part of that program because they are so simple. They are literally one or two ingredients like figs, dates, and blueberries. Uh, No added anything to upset my gut. I really appreciate that. So thanks. That's it for your support of this show. All right. Enough of me. Let's have a few words about those awesome sponsors and get on with the show. Good sleep. The one thing that sets you up for a great workout and a good day is quality sleep. We talk about it all the time here on the show, which is why I'm stoked to have Lagoon Sleep as a new sponsor. Because one of the most overlooked tools in a great sleep toolbox is the thing you literally rest your head on eight hours a night, your pillow. A quality pillow is everything. Otherwise, you end up tossing, turning, punching, and folding your pillow, waking up with neck pain, and all the stuff that happens when your pillow doesn't meet your personal comfort needs. Say hello to the most comfortable sleep you've ever had with Lagoon. They start you out with a two-minute personalized pillow quiz and then pair you with your perfect pillow. I got the Otter, a cooling adjustable pillow that is perfect for side sleepers who run warm at night like I do. It is a dream. It's fully adjustable, so I was able to get the perfect loft and support, and the cooling feature is everything. As someone who turned into a furnace every evening before menopause, I appreciate that the Otter is stuffed, with shredded gel-infused memory foam, which instead of trapping heat from my neck and head, draws it away and dissipates it. It's truly delightful. I'm a good sleeper, and Otter's taken it to the next level with both support and cooling. Put my head down, good night, Irene. My aura ring confirms what little tossing and turning I was doing is gone. The beauty of the pillow quiz is you can get the perfect pillow that you need to and make your sleep the best sleep you can have. Go to lagoonsleep.com slash hit play and take the two minute quiz to find your perfect match. And then use the code hit play, all caps, one word for 15% off your first purchase. Sweet dreams. For decades, running shoes have been researched, tested and designed for men. Brands have relied on the shrink it and pink it approach to sell male shoes to female customers. That's why we are stoked to be working with Hedda's. Hedda's designs athletic footwear for women that elevates performance, safety, and style. Hedda's has unlocked the science behind women's biomechanics through dedicated research and creates better shoes for women's performance. Some of Hedda's special features include a lower ankle collar to reduce rubbing on women's ankle bones, a breathable mesh toe box to allow for ventilation and accommodate female toe shape, a more narrow and reductive heel cup to reduce heel slippage and take pressure off the Achilles, a rounded instep that creates a snug fit through the middle to match the curvature of a woman's foot, and supercritical foam and a PBEX plate in the midsole to keep our legs going when the going gets tough. Hedda's has three shoe models designed for different sessions, the Alma Cruise for your long runs, the Alma Tempo for training days, and the Alma Speed for pushing the pace. I've been running in the Alma Tempos, and they are a pleasure to train in. 
You can get your own pair of Hedas at Hedas.com and use the code FEISTY20, that's all caps, FEISTY20, for 20% off. Check it out today. We'll put a clickable link in the show notes to make it a snap. All right. Well, Jill, I am first, like, congratulations on this book. I have written books, and my lord, that is, (laughs) it is a giant book that you have created here. How long did it take? Thank you for asking. (laughs) Um, So I started creating source material. I, I had created a core integration immersion about 18 years ago, which some of those writings, I mean, obviously have been gone over a thousand times over, but some of those original notions, some of the kernels were in that original training manual from 18 years ago. This, this body-based approach to gut work, breathing, uh, highlighting the respiratory diaphragm, this has been part of my path for decades, but actual writing material started probably about 18 years ago. And then a second heaping of that, as soon as I had finished writing the role model, I started to um, finish another course called the Breath and Bliss Immersion. So that original immersion was called the Core Integration Immersion. Then the second immersion that centered this type of work was called the Breath and Bliss Immersion. Um, And right around that time when I was developing that course or finalizing that manual, um, Victory Belt, my publisher, they wanted a second book from me. And this was the book I had always wanted to write. So Body by Breath was, I didn't have the title, but I knew that this was the work I wanted to put out in the world. Um, But when Victory Belt originally approached me about the first book that I wrote, um, they said, write a book, We'll, we'll publish it, write anything, we'll publish it. And I knew that self-myofascial release was a rising trend and I had a very specific perspective on it. And I, I thought it would probably be a good idea to put that out in the world because breath wasn't trending at all a decade ago mm. <laughs> at all, except in the yoga space, which is where I was living. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But, you know, thank goodness for, you know, a number of, of things that have happened culturally. Um, I mean, I don't want to say thank goodness for the pandemic. That was extremely unfortunate, but it it really did bring up the dialogue about lung health and anxiety um, to this, you know, critical mass. I mean, everybody actually knows what a respirator is now, whereas before <laughs> only only a handful of people probably knew about those. And um, and then with folks like James Nestor really kicking open breath in a general population way, uh, I think this this book is coming in at, at just the right time. Yeah, I, I agree. It's funny because I. I wanted to thank you also for the positivity that you bring to it, because, you know, there is a lot of talk. And in in this menopause space, we talk a lot about breath work using your, you know, using your breath because because anxiety is such a huge part, you know, as you're talking about women getting into perimenopause and menopause. Um, But there's 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 a there's a segment of the conversation where the narrative is almost like everyone is breathing wrong and it's killing you. And it like, and I hear, you know what I mean? And I hear from my audience, like it really stresses them out because they're like, I'm not doing anything right, including breathing. And, you know, breathing is really important. We can live for days without food or water and, you know, not without breath. So like body by breath, I think is, 
hundred percent correct and essential. But you bring this nice positivity and stepwise approach to it that I that I really appreciated. So thank you for that messaging. Thank you. I that's really important to me as somebody who has definitely felt maligned um, for parts of myself, you know, through other messaging out in the the greater media or social space. So I really want people to be able to own their process. And we also have to really, uh, I think, look at it, look at it, it, it look at it seriously. And if once we understand the anatomy, then that all the fear that I'm doing it wrong, or I'm breathing wrong, or, or breathing is killing me, or what, what the heck is happening with do I always have to breathe through my nose? Like all the right. things that are- <laughs> Do I have to tape are, my mouth shut? I messed up to tape my mouth shut. I should never- Right, are putting yeah. a, a veneer of fear on yeah. on some things. And, you know, our body organizes around airway. We're in, we're incredible organisms. Your, your body organizes around airway. It organizes around food. And are there more efficient ways? Yeah, there probably are definitely more efficient ways. Um, but, you know, we don't know what we don't know. And so the book really is a process of- of unfurling the the body based ramifications of you know of breathing patterns and breathing habits, but really it's about influencing. The book really is about influencing your recovery state. It's mm-hmm. about increasing your ability to tolerate a parasympathetic uh, stage of being within your body. And breath happens to be one of the tools, and it's probably one of the easiest tools for me to dissect as a leading participant in helping to attenuate and to attune yourself into a relaxation response that is sustainable, that is repeatable, um, that you can do no matter where you are in in your perimenopause, postmenopause, or excuse me, menopause state right. of being, and of course, all stages of life. So before we get into the mechanics of that, I'd like to talk just a bit about something that you you do open the book with that I think is really important and doesn't get talked about enough and that holds many women maybe especially back from good breathing practices and that we are taught to hate our bellies from a very young age, right? They are poked, they're made fun of, we're taught to pinch them because maybe we're too fat, we're told to suck it in, suck it up, flatten it, sculpt it. It's, you know, et cetera. And I, you know, I, I, along with all the body image issues, you know, and you have that really painful part where you talk about actually punching yourself in the stomach because you have like eating disorders. And I had an eating disorder too. And I really, that resonated with me. Like, I think that it's important that we, we talk about like how that might be impacting how we breathe and, or not. Oh yeah. It, it's so center to our center it's so central to our sense of self the abdomen the belly i mean this place that life comes out of our bodies um you really bringing me way back when you're talking about pinching the belly fat i it hadn't occurred to me how frequently i used to do that i mean i used to pinch the fat on top of the musculature as a measure of was I losing weight or was I gaining weight? Was I thin enough or was I not? We were told to. Can you pinch an inch? That was a campaign for cereal. Yes. That was a chronic sick test that we were all subjected to. Um, and I'm really, I'm really angry about it right now. So you've actually just triggered me. Sorry. That one, I, mean, I should have given that, you a um, 
Yeah, I can. I just remember looking down, navel gazing, right? Just gazing at my belly button, gazing at the fat around it, and and making those my finger calipers um, be the the judge of my worth. Yes. So that was coming from you know. So I guess I'll I'll tell a little bit about the story um, that I share in the book. I mean, my journey to a body by breath was really a mental health journey. And the journey started, I was an overweight kid. I was a hundred pounds and four foot nine in sixth grade. And I mean, I don't, I don't calculate BMI, but I was, I was chunky. And I was told I was chunky again and again by my family. Uh, every side of my family told me that I was fat. And um, I, you know, I was picked last. I was not athletic. I was the reader. Um, I had big, thick glasses. And I was all of those things. I was the geek, the nerd. I'm still the geek, the nerd. Um, but now I move and I teach people because <laughs> uh, I was able to move into my own body, which has been an amazing um, process, very difficult process. That um, we lived off the grid in Santa Fe, New Mexico. My, my family lived in a solar home. My mom and stepdad were kind of pioneers in the solar industry way back in the 70s. And so we moved into the solar community outside of Santa Fe, New Mexico. And if you wanted to watch TV, uh, you had to have a video because you didn't get, there was no TV reception out there. And so um, I already painted the picture. I'm in sixth grade, this heavy, heavy kid. My mom brings home the Jane Fonda workout and the Raquel Welsh yoga video one day, both of these videos. And I started doing these videos with her and I just got lit. I don't know why, but I finally loved moving. Oh, wow. And, so it was a positive influence. Oh, totally. Totally positive. And yes, I woke up. Like I woke up from the slumber, the torpor of my childhood. <laughs> um, and I got sore and I started to feel my body and I started to see changes. And within two weeks, my mom gave it up, but I came, became obsessed. Um, and now looking back, I know that I was actually orthorexic and I was abusing those videos. And I ended up losing about 35 pounds. I went down to 65 pounds. And all of a sudden, I was in control of my body. And I was in control of my life. And that control followed me for decades. So I became anorexic around that time with that weight loss. Um, and then I managed to hide it pretty good. And then it morphed because I never dealt with the issues. And I became bulimic around age 16. And when I went to college, I went to college at Northwestern. I went into the performance studies department. So I was studying dance and voice and writing and performance. And um, I was taking a Pilates class in, in the dance department. And I managed to drag my best friend, who was my roommate, into class too. She was pre-med. And, you, you know, there was nobody outside of dance that was like in Pilates, but I managed to like figure out how to get her in. And she would always be sore from the Pilates. And I was never sore, ever, because I was completely blank in my core. I mean, I had no feeling there. And like I said, I used to pinch my stomach. I would punch my stomach because I was so angry at my belly and my belly fat. And um, and just that's how I took my rage out on myself. In addition to binging and purging, I would strike myself. But, but I never got sore from muscle fatigue because I was using my limbs to bypass my core. I had no connection there. It was numb. 
it was hurting. It's, its soul was hurting, but it, it was numb, right? Physically, I couldn't really engage it. And I, I was doing work study in a couple of healing arts centers outside of the school. So I was actually taking massage classes at a shiatsu school. And I was also um, doing work study at a yoga center. And I confessed to this yoga teacher at the time. I said, I, I don't get sore in my abs and I'm bulimic because I knew these were connected. I knew somehow that the binging and purging was part of this blankness that I felt on the inside. And she said, lay down on this prop. And she handed me a uh, look like a hamburger bun. It was a sandbag shaped like a hamburger bun filled with sand, hard sand. And it was a prop they used in the Iyengar space for headstands back in the day. Why they were putting their heads on that, I'm not sure. But what she said to do is lay belly down on this prop and breathe. And so I did. I, I laid face down, rested my abdomen on top of that, scene, that sandbag. And I began to feel searing pain in my insides. Um, what I now know is, is visceral pain, like the agony of that pressure from the visceral experience of binging and purging all the time. There was just total chaos in there. But I didn't just feel the visceral pain. I also started to feel emotional pain. That pressure seemed to tap into something that started to let me grieve and started to help me feel what I had been punishing, running from, avoiding, bypassing my whole life. And so that, that tool was way too hard because that's like concrete. And, but when I went back to you know, my dorm, what I would do every morning, Celine, I would wake up and I would roll up a hand towel and I would, I would face in it into like a, a honey bun shape where you can picture you're rolling a hand towel and then you coil it. I would lay face down, I would move it, that softer thing all around my abdomen every single day as a ritual. And I slowly started to move through my body I started to heal the bulimia. I was doing talk therapy. The talk therapy wasn't doing anything for me, in and out of talk therapy. But it was once I actually met my mental health problem in my body and started to have a dialogue between my guts and my brain and my soul and my heart. That's when I was able to finally move through and beyond. Um, and then really years later, I ended up writing a book about, about that kind of, because um, those that process of, of meeting oneself and inviting all the voices to the table are a huge part of the reintegration that happens in body by breath. Well, it's so interesting to me. A couple parts of that are so interesting. I mean, the, the emotional center makes a lot of sense, but, you know, as, cause you know, I, you have those, the, the core balls that you, those, ball. yeah, the gorgeous yeah. ball. And it, yeah. And it occurs to me that like, we work on every single muscle on our bodies often, but our diaphragm, but that like, we don't, you know, we just don't touch any, we don't even really touch our bellies. And when you lie down on that, it's like, oh, like, like we just, even when you get a massage, usually it's not involving your abs. Right. So it's such like this weird it's, it's sometimes the doctor will touch it and you'd be like, oh, someone's touching my belly, you know, because it's it's such a strange, oddly forbidden zone. So can can we like talk about the talk about that? Like, the, you know, like I don't think people really understand their diaphragm as a muscle or any of, you know, any of that, how we can use that 
that muscle to like improve all kinds of things, not just the emotional, like we talked about, but our proprioception and our mobility and our posture, our digestion, our brain states. I mean, the diaphragm, in my opinion, is the central hub of the entire body. And if I were going to center a skeletal muscle, it would be the respiratory diaphragm. It definitely wouldn't be your quads or your masseter. Or, you know what I mean? Um, and the heart's great as a smooth muscle. Heart's great. Oh, yeah, heart's good. <laughs> the heart certainly has had enough press. Do you know what I'm saying? Like the yeah. heart has got it. It's already got all of its awards. But the respiratory diaphragm is this bizarre skeletal muscle that is this partition between your, you know, your, your, your lung space and your visceral space, your organ space. Um, but it has so many functions in the body. And it's this thing that it's doing its thing. You don't have to pay any attention and you will go on breathing and you will go on living and you will be fine in, in the state that you're in, even though, you know, you might have neck pain or back pain or whatever that can be remedied if we improve the breathing, what have you going back to the beginning where people are feeling like, wait, I'm, I don't know how to breathe. Um, You are breathing. You're breathing fine. Um, But the diaphragm also can be told how to breathe. You can change the way it's moving in your body and the way it's adjusting to breath pressure by how you manipulate the structures around it. So the, the diaphragm is a really odd skeletal muscle because unlike, unlike your masseter, which has like 600 um, That's your jaws, muscle spindles. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Your- right. Your chewer it has like yeah. something like six hundred different um, sensory neurons that that tell your brain about place. Your diaphragm has seven. It's pretty much devoid of you needing to have any feedback about it whatsoever. That is how much the brain regulates the diaphragm for you. You don't need to control it. You don't need to do a thing. You're going to be just fine as an organism um, with the brain's control of diaphragm. Um, so it's really unusual in that way. I'm, I'm absolutely obsessed with it. Uh, shall I go on? Should I tell you more about the, the body-wide impact of your respiratory diaphragm? Well, I mean, it's going to, we're going to sort of continue this conversation, right? Because I'm assuming it's going to go into like the vagus nerve and all the other stuff. But so, but let but let's stop there because some people might be hearing this and being like, "Well, if the brain's automatically doing it, then what am I doing? Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, what, like what, like then do I need to? Because I don't, I don't tell my heart how to beat, though you kind of do if you try to calm yourself down or excite yourself, right? Can you talk a bit about that? Like, absolutely, like, yeah. How do most people? How is that diaphragm functioning in most of us? And then, how and why do we want to? manipulate that in some way. Mm-hmm. Great. So the way I outline it in the book, I think I do a really simple uh, uh, division of it. So the respiratory diaphragm, it lives in the rib cage. Let's get this clear. So it's like this kind of misshapen trampoline and it lines the lower six ribs. So you have 12, 12 ribs on the right side, 12 ribs on the left side, you have 24 ribs, but the lower six ribs are lined with this uh, mushroom cap inside of the rib cage. Now it doesn't just live in the rib cage. The diaphragm also has tails that trinkle down and hook into the lumbar spine. So this is a spinal muscle as well as a rib cage muscle. But it's even more than that. The diaphragm, as it makes its way to the low back spine, it crosses over a very powerful low back and pelvic muscle called the quadratus lumborum. 
And then it crosses over another muscle that probably most of your listeners know, the psoas. Oh boy, the psoas. Yes. Oh, we all know the psoas, right? It's, oh my God. Talk about a muscle that is that it that takes a lot of takes a lot of heat, right? Yep. But it's it's you know, it is a it is a first responder. The psoas is so important. It is a first responder. Um, and of course, if you, I know you put a lot of miles on your body um, and love to, to do running exercise, you know, your psoas is a major player in stride. Not a cyclist too. Hmm. Oh, and a cyclist. Oh yeah, for sure. So, but it's really important to breath because if we have a lot of restrictions in the, the psoas, well, the diaphragms glide upon the psoas and upon the quadratus lumborum um, can be compromised or restricted and can build up restrictions from an extra short, tight psoas, an extra short, tight QL. So, so we've got a little bit of the anatomy outlined. And I'll just put one more anatomical piece um, on the table here, which is that the diaphragm is also the seat for your lungs and heart. So your, your lungs and heart are, are sitting on top of the diaphragm and the heart is actually tethered to it via a connective tissue sleeve called the pericardium. So as your diaphragm descends on inhale and it flies back up on exhale, there is a downward pull of the heart up and down all day long as the heart is beating inside of its pericardium. It's also riding up and down on this, this elevator of the diaphragm inside of you. So when we talk about the cardiopulmonary center, I mean, that's it. This is this, 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 the stuck togetherness of your heart and your diaphragm. But of course the heart gets all the acclaim and the diaphragm is like this doormat. All right. So in the, in the body by breath book, I divide breathing into three different zones. You have three zones of respiration in zone one. We're talking about everything that's happening below the rib cage. So this would be, commonly called abdominal breathing. And so, but please don't think that this is just your abdomen. When your diaphragm descends, all of the tissues sewn directly to the diaphragm and all the tissues and organs below the diaphragm feel the exertion of pressure from the diaphragm as it goes down. And that pressure bulges mm -hmm. the abdomen, the low back, the mm -hmm. waist, the pelvic mm -hmm. floor. There mm -hmm. should be some expression of stretch in all of these structures when you take a zone one breath or when you take an abdominal breath. I mean, abdominal abdominal is the worst term, but um, it's really it's really the most colloquial term. Yeah. But your low back is connected as is as connected to your diaphragm as your quote unquote abdomen is. So we have this circumferential expansion that should happen down there. When we're doing abdominal breathing, we're in a calm state. This is our, 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 our sleep at rest breath, um, calm state breath, parasympathetic dominant state. If we move up into the thorax, into the rib cage, we transition into what's called a zone two breath or the zone two area of respiration. And zone two breathing is a collaboration between your intercostals and your respiratory diaphragm. Remember the diaphragm, it actually lives in the rib cage. And so it collaborates with the intercostals to lift your ribs up on inhale and to help your uh, ribs reset themselves down on exhale. So there's bones flapping in the breeze. You have this inhale upward pumping and then this exhale, this downward turning. When we are a zone, we're, when we're in our zone two breathing, this is a more amplified, excited, sympathetically leaning body. 
And typically we're doing only a zone two breath, like we're exclusively zone two breathing when we are um, needing to restrict mobility in the lumbar lumbopelvic complex. Why would we need to do that? Well, we're lifting something heavy. We're pushing something across the floor. So we have to brace these bones and protect the organs from accident, injury, or insult, right? And so we, the breath has to happen somewhere. And so it will need to happen in the zone two region. And so this is a common athletic breath. The problem with zone two breathing for many athletes is they're not getting their exhale out fully all the time. And so sometimes you have ribs that are not so cooperative in terms of going up and down. We can also um, tread so much in zone two that we actually start to cast or shellac our zone one in exorbitant amounts of unnecessary tension. So for example, if I don't take the time to allow my zone one elasticity to show up, I'm going to become very rigid there. And so I'll end up being a zone two breather most of the time. And that will leave me in a very anxious state. And so, so zone you see, one is higher. No, zone one is the gut. Oh, so, okay. So, I'm sorry. So right? we haven't gotten to three yet. Okay. We're zone not in one. three yet. So no, I'm just saying, saying, how would you become a dominant zone? Three gotcha. Breather? Gotcha. Excuse me. Yep. A dominant zone two breather. I got so you. Okay. A lot of athletes many athletes, not a lot, but many athletes may live in a zone two dominant state because their core muscles are very rigid from overtraining and from not wanting their abdomen to be manipulated for whatever reason. So for example, I teach uh, gut massage and gut rolling. We had this discussion earlier, you know, formerly I was pinching my belly because I hated it and I was measuring the fat but I wasn't touching it with an understanding of how important this area is for my recovery, for my downregulation, for this elasticity and the tenderness in this area to be prevalent. I have to, I have to be able to split my autonomic state. And so if I'm bracing for a punch all the time, or I want to look skinny all the time, I don't stand a chance. I'm going to live in that zone two more aroused state. Yep. Yep. Now, when that zone two becomes problematic, we often start to flip into zone three. And zone three is our in case of emergency zone. And that zone three is the stuff of the head, neck, collarbone, shoulders. So that's the, the startled breath. That's the shock. That's the fear response. And often that's accompanied with um, a mouth breath um, and over time, if that becomes a chronic way of processing life, you get a lot of rigidity in your neck, your shoulders, you have shoulder pain, you have um, uh, frequent spasms in your, in your vocal tract, difficulty swallowing, um, never feeling like you get a complete breath, air hunger, and high anxiety. So the, each of these zones have a, um, a, 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 an analog in, in, your, in your nervous system. And... Um, it's not tenable to maintain zone three breathing for long bouts. Obviously you use it in sport. Um, that last push, that last exertion, it's critical. Like get that last bit of air in good luck getting it out. But um, that's uh, that's sort of the story of the zones. And ideally we want to try to um, modify the unchecked tensions in zone three and then be able to have a real facile elastic relationship between zone one, zone two. Gotcha.
Musculoskeletal health is everything during menopause. Everyone knows how much I love Joint Health Plus from Prevenex, which has helped me get back to distance running after arthritic toes stopped me in my tracks. Now they have a product that has become my go-to for muscle strength and recovery, Muscle Health Plus. Muscle Health Plus contains all the key ingredients we talk about on this show, like creatine monohydrate, essential amino acids, and branched-chain amino acids, plus even more cutting-edge ingredients like HMB and estrogen that are scientifically shown to increase muscle growth, recovery, and strength. I use it every day during my early morning lifting sessions, and there's no question that it helps my power during those workouts and my recovery after. Plus, I love having everything I need from the best high-quality ingredients in one reasonably priced shake. I've also heard from fellow users who have had bloating or GI upset in the past from creatine that haven't had any of that with Muscle Health Plus. I make my shake with almond milk and espresso, but it's also good with ice cold water, which makes the flavor really pop. As always, you can get 15% off your first order with the code HIPPLAY, all caps, one word, at Prevenex.com. That's HIPPLAY, all caps, one word, at Prevenex.com. Do your muscles a favor and head on over and get some today. As a lifelong runner and cyclist, I am stoked to announce that Tifosi Optics has come on as a podcast sponsor. The beauty of Tifosi sports glasses is that they hit all the marks. They are shatterproof polycarbonate, so the lenses not only reduce glare, but also offer scratch resistance and complete eye protection. They stay put. They have little hydrophilic rubber nose pads that actually get more grippy the more you sweat, so they stay secure and don't slide down your face even when you're running in sauna-like conditions. No matter what sport you do, they have a shade for your activity, including tennis, fishing, pickleball, running, cycling, and just hanging out at the beach. And they are super reasonably well-priced, which is very hard to find in a sea of overpriced eyewear. And they just look freaking rad. So head on over to tifosioptics.com and use the code FM, capital F, and capital M, like Feisty Menopause, number 20, FM20, to get 20% off your order today. I'll put a clickable link in the show notes to make it a snap. Is that part of your specific practice, you know, in, in helping people to do that? Like yes. when, okay. Yeah. In the, I mean, in the book, there are four different ways that I address these zones of respiration, as well as the nervous system, the vagal innervation into each of these zones. And that's through breathing, it's breath practice, breathe, roll via self myofascial release, move, different movement positions, movement exercises, and then non-sleep deep rest yoga nidra and and very much so in the the roll chapter you really see oh these are rollouts for zone three these are rollouts to enhance my ability to connect with zone two these are rollouts for zone one um and they're they're very helpful to map look i would say many people have significant challenges in zone three just because of the day-to-day of how our life takes place um, in our hand in a cell phone or at a desk. And so that tension pattern from hand all the way up through shoulder, face and neck creates a fascial tension that kind of casts us as a zone three breather. Even if we're not intending to be, um, our body is like cleaving <laughs> to these devices and it's, it's adjusting posture. I mean, this text neck thing is not a joke. Like this is a problem. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, you've mentioned 
the, this connection to the vagus nerve and the parasympathetic and, and the whole drive of the book is to help us turn that switch, right? To help mm-hmm. us get. Turn on your off switch. Yes. To turn on, which I love. So the vagus nerve is definitely having a moment too, right now. We're talking ice baths and cold plunges. Um, can you talk about how that relates to the breath work, you know, in light of what you've been saying here, as far as getting to that switch? Yes. So um, the vagus nerve is a heart controller. So its influence on your heart is what allows you to have heart rate variability. If you didn't have a vagus nerve, your heart would just be 120, 130, 135, 40 beats per minute. That's it. But the reason we have a 70 to 80 range is because the vagus nerve slows down the heartbeat and we have this variability. Um, when we're in high athletic uh, output, the vagus nerve, its its outflow is completely shut off and diminished, which is why we're able to get that high heart rate thing with exertion. But if when you stop, your heart rate never goes down, this is ex- this can be lethal, right. right? This can be extremely problematic if our vagus isn't firing correctly upon the heart. And so what are things that we can do to um, elaborate on a vagal, uh, vagal firing or vagal dominant states, which the vagus nerve is your chief parasympathetic nerve. So there are ways that you can sort of amplify its effects on the body. One of them is through, um, well, I can, you want me to outline what I call the five P's? I was going to ask about them. So yes, why don't we get to the five P's? (laughs) Sorry to jump things. Yeah, no, I mean, that was going to be my next question. So we might as well get right to it because. um, Yeah. Okay. So the, what body by breath offers is kind of a compound pharmacy of tools that any body can do to try to induce a parasympathetic dominant state and also to help you tolerate being in a parasympathetic dominant state. What do you mean by that? Like you you said that before and I kind of let it go, but I didn't really understand like why I would have trouble tolerating this, what seems like it should be a lovely state. Doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So most, most bodies, especially athletes are really good at going from zero to 60 in a heartbeat. Yeah. But to go from 60 to zero without breaking down, hitting the skids or falling apart is not always so easy. So the process of shutting down physiology so that you can allow relaxation to occur, um, it can be really problematic for many bodies. Hmm. So there's this phenomenon called relaxation-induced anxiety. And <laughs> have you heard the term? No, it's just like, it's, I, I, it just, it sounds, um, I, I'm, maybe it sounds too close to home. <laughs> yes. So, so for, for some people, and we'll get to the five Ps, some people, for some bodies, stillness is very threatening, right? The thought of stillness, sitting still while meditating, like that's when the pain shows up. Right. right. In being still, that's when all the bad feelings show up. That's when your mind starts to just victimize you and just wail on you. For many people, their anxiety spikes with stillness. And this phenomenon is described in literature as relaxation-induced anxiety, and there are estimates that up to 53% of the population experience this, which is why there are so many meditation-averse people, 
It doesn't mean that they're bad people. It just means that in order for this parasympathetic relaxation, um, un, you know, unsympathetically driven state to occur, we or those bodies may need a novel way to get still. In fact, maybe we just take the word still out of it and we figure out breathing strategies or slow motion movement strategies or pressure-based strategies with, with self-massage that induce quietude into a nervous system that um, for whatever reason, stillness is averse. So uh, stillness is aversive rather. So, um, you know, I have a lot of what I call messy meditators come into my studio here. And it's, it's described really well by actually Dr. Stephen Porges and um, his polyvagal theory. Um, the polyvagal theory is a, a sort of a modern theory that's looking at the evolution of the vagus nerve and how from, from uh, an evolutionary standpoint, what different aspects of the vagus nerve came to mean um, in our body. And um, when, when a body in stillness starts to experience pain or nerve rushes um, or uncontrollable twitching or runaway thoughts, that's the sympathetic nervous system becoming aroused in, in spite of your best willed efforts. And so there's, it's like, it's hijacking you, but it's also adaptive. Because for many bodies that experienced this, stillness was dangerous. Stillness was when the stranger crept into your room mm. or when you were um, uh, uh, victimized or um, when you would get, you, the, the, there was a deep, deep silence and then the screaming would happen. You know, so the body remembers its story and your body is a storehouse for story, but you don't always remember it. Your body does, but you don't always remember it for very good reasons. And so some of these reactions we have, some of these responses we have, we're literally not in control of them. And, um, and so really the book tries to embrace that anxiety body, to not shame it, to not say like, you're not a good relaxer or you're not a good breather. It's adaptive. And so let's work with it. And maybe it just wants to have a voice. Maybe it wants to speak up. I'm here. I'm listening. All of me is here, ready to, to, to be with you when you're ready. So I, I try to really create this, this welcoming um, space for, you know, for a body in process. Okay. So gosh, that took like a total psyche turn, somatic turn, anatomical turn, lots of layers here. But let's get to the five Ps because I think the five Ps gives your listeners, especially if they're coaching inclined, yeah. um, a programming concept yeah. around, well, what does it look like to design a parasympathetic practice for myself or for my Excellent. clients? Yeah. So parasympathetic practice, um, I think if you get five, these five Ps down in your head and your body, um, you'll be able to get into that off switch place. So the first P is called perspective. Perspective has to do with a mindset. And that mindset is a top-down approach that allows and welcomes the embodiment that occurs when you shift into subtle states. What might those subtle, what might the subtle states, you know, what might that my body off gas? Well, you will you're gonna have feels, right? 
mm-hmm. not just range of motion changes, but range of emotion might start to show up. So we want to have a mental or an invitational phrase that allows all of us to show up. So for example, these mindset strategies might be, I mentioned some a minute ago, all of me is welcome here. I am listening. I'm here for you. My breath is home. So these are peppered throughout the book. Am I I saying that to myself? Like, so say, like if I sit down and I have, you know, I don't have- Lay down. Sitting might just suck for you. So maybe (laughs) laying down or laying on your side or something. Right. So am I, and that is when all my worries pop up. It's not Mm -hmm. even about like past trauma as much as like, I am a pro-class catastrophic thinker, which I've talked about before. And then I'll start worrying about my parents dying or something, you know, like all the things that you just push, don't want to think about, you know, um, I don't want to start crying, but that's when you start like, so, so am I just self-talking myself? Yeah. Okay. You're, you're being a gracious host. Okay. To yourself and to your process. And you have no idea where it's going to go, but that's the anchor. And then you can come back to that again and again. All of me is welcome here. Or my breath is home. Whatever, whatever that phrase is. And I, again, there's a there's about two dozen in the book. And if you're like, I don't like those, I have more. Okay. <laughs> or you can write your own. How's that? <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, perspective, the mind is the mindset. The second P is place. In order for true parasympathetic dominant state to happen, there are some parameters around place. They're not always going to happen. But the ideal scenario is that you are in a safe place. It is quiet. It's warm. It's a little dark. Those all typically help your brain to enter into a parasympathetic dominant state. Um, But the reality is, is we don't have our panic attacks in the sanctuary, usually. (laughs) Usually, you're trying to make a connection, um, you, you know, or you just got cut off or uh, a shitty email just came in, you know, whatever it is. So place, I mean, there's ideal place and then there's place that you actually have to imagineer occasionally. So if you're teaching, if uh, folks are listening, they teach at a loud clangy gym and you're teaching to a small group in the loud clangy gym, well, maybe you just as the coach, you, this is gonna sound totally corny, but you let sort of cast a, a zone around your people, or, you know, you could even take um, some dumbbells and make a little, almost like little mini theater, bracket them off. Like you're just casting a zone that this is the safe space for my people to relax in or whatever. So I hope you get the picture. So place. Number three, so we've got perspective, we've got place. Number three is position. Position changes blood flow. So the position that's going to really alter our stress response the most is get grounded, get down, lay down. And if you can't, if you can lay down, maybe you can even create a gentle slope by lifting your pelvis slightly higher than your heart, slightly higher than your head. And that induces what's known as the baroreceptor reflex. Now, this is a really wonderful direct way to press go on your off switch. I mean, this is like one of the fastest ways to create a safe shutdown response 
on sympathetic drive. And that is that when your pelvis is higher than your heart, which is higher than your brain, blood, blood follows the laws of gravity, folks. So as soon as you're a little bit upside down, blood starts to rush towards your brain. And you have pressure sensors in your carotid arteries on the side of your neck that are the gatekeepers of your blood brain barrier. And as soon as they start to feel that too much blood is coming north towards your brain, there's a quick relay mediated by the vagus nerve that um, tells the that tells the vagus nerve to fire upon the heart to slow it down and to fire oh, upon the diaphragm mm -hmm. to slow mm -hmm. down mm -hmm. um, your breath pace as well as constrict all of the blood vessels within your body to maintain the blood brain barrier. And so that emergency break is a really wonderful way to, to soak up the relaxation response. So we've got perspective, place, position, and now- And would that even just be mm -hmm. putting, before you go on to the next one, um, a little bolster underneath your- Yep. Uh... Yep, you can put, I said on another podcast, because body by breath is so big. You can put uh, it under here. They could put the body by breath book which is almost three inches underneath their pelvis. That's enough. Yeah. Like you only need a few inches to get yeah, that. Gentle just put a little effect. towel over it and you're good. Yeah, absolutely. The fourth P is what most people have been waiting for me to talk about. It's pace of breath, right? We're yeah. here. The book's called body by breath. And I'm like, I'm at the fourth P before even talking about breathing, but the pace of breath, or let's, we call it pneumatic pacing to get more P's in there is typically our we become vagal dominant when we extend our exhalations so that they are longer than our inhales so no matter what the duration of your inhale is as long as you're going longer with your exhalation time frame you're going to be accelerating the input of the vagus onto the heart which will decelerate the heart rate so that's blow out the candles inhale blow out the candles, right? So the exhale is always longer. Now there are paradoxical breath patterns that flip that. They're really fun to do. They're in the book, but just think in the most part, ugh, just get the exhales out. Mm -hmm. And then the fifth P is palpation. Mm -hmm. That's the self-massage. And I could couple palpation and pressure so that we have two P's in that final, um, final P. But the, the, activity of doing self myofascial release, especially in certain positions, especially with certain um, grippy, pliable, soft pressure balls induces a relaxation response uh, via certain pressure pathways. So I can actually target different vagal maneuvers with the balls. Um, but also the stroking, the way we use the therapy balls um, impacts the proprioceptors in different layers of fascial tissues that tamps down sympathetic outflow and allows parasympathetic dominant states to arise. So we have this, this 5P menu, and if you can accomplish one, two, three of them, you will get, you'll start to get a parasympathetic response. And if you can compound it to all five, you will enter a parasympathetic paradise. Is it ideally, is this a practice that you are doing all at the same time? I mean, am I, you know, having some time where I am working with, you know, one of the balls and doing all of these other things. Mm -hmm. Yes. So you would, for example, you can start and you can message yourself. Um, um, 
my breath is home, right? That could be the message that you say to yourself and you're already in a safe place and you get down to the ground and then you lift your pelvis up on top of a block or maybe even on top of the gorgeous ball. And then you take a couple of, of the smaller, I have other rubber balls, so um, many balls, <laughs> but these are tuna balls are my smallest. And you can put them on the trapezius muscles, which by the way, um, are innervated by the accessory nerve and the accessory nerve shares source nuclei with the vagus. So when I start to massage my upper traps while I'm elevated, when my pelvis is elevated, I'm, I've got all five peaks going at the same time. Oh, pardon me. You're also extending your exhalations while you're doing this. So right. I've got all five peas going and that's the compound pharmacy that's generated from within no prescription needed and no negative chemical side effects. This is all generated from your physiology. And then what is the, the particular benefit of, of, flipping that over and lying on the ball, like so that one of those balls is underneath your abdomen. Yes. So um, earlier I was describing the range of the respiratory diaphragm and its connections into other structures. I, I named the quadratus lumborum and I named the psoas, but what I didn't name is that the, the diaphragm is in the same fascial sleeve as the transversus abdominis. So the transversus abdominis if you're not familiar with it, that's your typically known as your deepest abdominal muscle. The transversus abdominis is like a cummerbund. If you bring your hands to your waist with your four fingers aiming forward and your thumbs aiming back, that's about the volume of muscle cells in the, in the transversus abdominis. The rest of the cummerbund is fascia. And, but the fascia goes across the rectus abdominis, forms something called the, the, the rectus sheath. The fascia behind you inserts itself into a structure called the thoracolumbar aponeurosis. Um, and down below, it streams across the iliacus, becomes part of the pelvic floor. But then up above the transversus abdominis, the fascia of the transversus abdominis is in exactly the same layer as the respiratory diaphragm. And so when I massage my guts with a gorgeous mm -hmm. ball, I'm also tugging on the fascial relationships between these abdominal muscles and the respiratory diaphragm. So I have a chance to really play at the length tension relationships between um, these tissues. And I, I will say, because I've done this for, oh my God, how many years? Uh, 2001 was the first time I taught a workshop where I had other people lay on towels. It <laughs> 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 was a while before I figured out the gorgeous ball, but I would have people lay on towels. Um, I've taught this to, gosh, hundreds of thousands of bodies. Um, most bodies have a, a very challenged relationship in their abdomen, going back way back to the beginning of our, of our, of our discussion. Um, but they also didn't realize that the, the tensions, the unknown tensions that they have in their abdomen are not allowing the diaphragm to descend to the fullest. So if I'm holding my abdomen in all the time, this goes back to the zone two breather, and then I try to take a deep breath, the breath is going to go north instead of going south in the body. And we really want to be able to have the facility to have all zones at our disposal. So the benefit of laying on a cordless ball on your side or on your front or even on your back and your thoracolumbar fascia is identifying unknown regions of tension in these zones that are inhibiting the full range of respiration. Now, that full range of respiration includes movement of the back muscles too. I mean, 
And the pelvic floor, pain. right? What's that? And the pelvic floor, correct? I mean, you've got yes. women in this demographic, particularly, I think, that have very clenched tight pelvic floors because of all kinds of issues. Um, and it occurs to me that that is playing into this as well. I am literally sitting on a yoga tune-up ball on my pelvic floor while we're talking Celine, if I'm being perfectly <laughs> honest here. <laughs> so, um, I mean, in and out. I'm also kind of moving it around my fanny in different ways. Can I say fanny on your podcast? You, you sure can. You can say whatever you want. Fanny. It's so old fashioned. That's like my fanny. Um, yes. So pelvic floor, uh, urinary incontinence, fecal incontinence. These are all, uh, these are all issues that um, I, gosh, you know what? I did discuss them. We do have a pelvic floor chunk in the book and there were, you know, I had 380 pages that were cut last August. Holy um, crap. The book is 480 oh, no. pages. <laughs> I know. So I had all these um, testimonials. I had all these stories from people who've lived a body by breath and have had, you know, massive changes in symptoms by doing this work. And there were a couple of people who had different pelvic floor challenges, um, uh, pain with sex, and then urinary and fecal incontinence uh, with another person that um, have been greatly shifted due to soaking in these parasympathetic states and then doing manipulations of these different regions um, to help reintegrate. Yeah. With the breath. With, with all the things. So again, yeah. it's, even though it's breath is the lead lead in the title, it's not the, it's not the exclusive tool. It really is all these tools that, that build your recovery mm-hmm, body. Mm-hmm. I got you. Maybe my next book will be recovery body. But I don't know. I like body by breath. No, I like, I like body by breath too. And I'm wondering, um, you know, in, in people's sort of throughout the day when they're, when they're maybe not able to practice all of this, but oh yeah, you know, how should they be thinking about, about their breathing, you know, and, and, and especially like you said, you get the email, something goes south. You're like, you're, you're in this menopausal state where you find your anxiety creeping up frequently like what are your how do you tell people to go about thinking about their breath during you know just sort of the everyday i think phase one it's it's it is about awareness is realizing and recognizing which zone your breath feels at home in um and then uh you know especially if it feels like it's stuck in zone two Mm -hmm. or zone three then trying to work with your body in a way that you can migrate it into a different zone. And if you don't have the tools, you don't need to have the tools. Maybe you have an exercise mat at home. You roll up the exercise mat and you put that on your side waist and you breathe into your side waist with the biofeedback of that rolled up mat, or you put that in your ribs on the side of your ribs and you breathe into that. You don't have to stick a thing in your abdomen like I did, um, you know, 30 years ago and was in, exorbitant pain because I was so disconnected and, you know, gnarly in my organs. I don't think that's the best practice for most people. You want to start much more gently um, and and have things maybe come onto your side body and then feel the range of the diaphragm's lateral motion. I mean, first of all, people just uh, abdominal breathing, but like they should be breathing into their back, but should also be breathing their side. I mean, it's like, it's a whole surround sound thing. So we just want to try to tap into um, different 
relationships of the diaphragm and these other structures. Because that's really how we get into the diaphragm because you can't feel the diaphragm. I mean, you could, you can lean over your fingers under the costal margin and you can palpate the muscle, but the muscle's not gonna give you a lot of feedback because it's just kind of like, hey, I don't have these muscle spindles, but all these other muscles that I'm connected to do. So try to stimulate me, let's have some fun. Um, let's pump our breath from inside out and use tools from outside in to make peace with that, to, to make a connection. And you'll also get a benefit because you're talking about the connection to the lumbar spine and to the psoas and to all these things. I would think that the next dot that could be connected there is it will help your mobility. Oh my gosh, your performance, because you're refilling your tank and you're improving your recovery resilience, your output, your strength, your, your length tension relationships and all these muscles will be balanced and you'll be able to get better contractions. I mean, some of the evidence we have on the rolling is that the rolling for somehow induces better motor control and better torque out of those muscles. So rolling is very beneficial to the output. Couple that with soaking in the relaxation response, you really restore yourself, you truly regenerate. And the, your, so your next game or your next race is, is just that much better. And then you have something that you can do on your own. You don't need to rely on other people to fix you. You don't need to rely on other specialists to keep patching you together. You have a protocol that works for you and it can evolve over time as our bodies are aging and changing in these grand phases of our life. So, I, I mean, the book is very big and we could go on for many hours to talk about this. Uh, I am so grateful for your time. Is there anything that we have not covered that you wanted to make sure that the audience heard about any? Yeah. Of I mean, I, I, I do want to say, so I am perimenopausal right now myself. I entered into perimenopause uh, during the pandemic. I thought I was going insane. I was having rage, uncontrolled rage that, I mean, yeah, the pandemic sucked, but what was happening inside of me it felt like it was way bigger than the pandemic. And um, I started to have night sweats. So I was like, okay, this has got to be, but I need, I need, I need, I need to see a psychiatrist. Like I am totally losing it. And luckily I had my appointment with um, my OB, like my yearly. And I just, you know, I described my hot flashes and my emotions. And he was like, well, let's just give you a little bit of estrogen here. And literally within days, I just felt my brain come back. And the hot flashes disappeared and it was such a relief because I didn't know how I was going to parent and I didn't know how I was going to finish this book. So um, <laughs> I, I just want to, I just want to identify that in, in my body for your, for your listeners. Cause I know that is the, 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 the target listener here are those in perimenopause and menopause. And it's been very exciting to me to be in this phase of my life and to see the changes in my body and to also see how my practices are or aren't supporting those shifts. Um, and so far, so good. I mean, my sleep is much better if I actually do exertion-based activities as well as the recovery-based activities. So um, I would say that, you know, the resilience thing is ultimately, and I know that a lot of your listeners are already high-end athletes. Um, if you haven't added this side of your resilience spectrum in, it's not just about you know, continuing to push, 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 um, and PR, PR, 
but you know, make make your peer, make peace with recovery. And I promise you, you will you will have some newfound zest um, in your output. And it will help with sleep. Yeah. No, that's a that's a great, a great way to to wrap this up. And uh I had a, a woman on my podcast, Dee Dee Griesbauer, who is a 52, and you know, she she just won Ultraman, which is a 320 miles of swimming, biking, and running. But you know, she said, and much to your she said that all those things that you considered marginal when you were like 35 perhaps are now maximal. Like you must maximize that piece, the recovery, the sleep, the parasympathetic. So it has to be um, the most important thing in your training schedule. There you have it. You said it, Celine. Thank you. Well, that's our show. Come on back next week. When I had the absolute honor of sitting down with one of my favorite artists and illustrators, Lisa Congdon, who is also a cyclist and a bike racer, who, after getting blindsided by menopause, is now at 55, smashing her previous records thanks to changes she made in her training and lifestyle. We talk all about that and so much more in this show. So come on back for that one. And until then, as always, stay feisty. You've been listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I'm your host, Celine Yeager. The show is edited and produced by the strong, talented, and amazing women at Live Feisty Media. Follow us on social media at Feisty Menopause, and please help us spread the word. Screenshot and share this episode on your social media channels with the tag at Feisty Menopause. Share the show with your friends. And please subscribe, like, review, and rate this show wherever you get your podcasts. Word of mouth and good reviews make it easier for other listeners to find. Thanks for listening. And as always, stay feisty. Stay feisty.